Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast. It's such an honor to be with you today. If you heard that brand new intro music, that's brought to you by the legendary producer who makes this show happen every single week, Caleb Stanton. Caleb and his team over at Stanton Creative have done such an amazing job at making this podcast sound good. Do me a favor. Check them out. Let them know that you heard about them here on the Reclamation Podcast. And if you have any podcast needs, connect with them. Speaking of needs, today's conversation is all about meeting the need of theology. I sit down with Dr. Timothy Tennant, who served at the president of Asbury Seminary um, for quite a number of years. We talk about leadership. We talk about faith. We talk about why good theology matters. This was such a rich conversation. I know you're going to enjoy every single bit of it. If you do enjoy it, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button. Wherever you listen to podcasts, leave a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify. And the highest compliment you can give us, share this episode with a friend. Somebody who maybe you know wrestles with a little bit of theology. I think you're going to enjoy Dr. Tennant. It was really fun. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Timothy Tennant. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast. I'm so excited today to have the president of Asbury Seminary, uh, Dr. Timothy Tennant, author, speaker, theologian. Uh, Timothy, thank you so much for being here today. It's great being here, Tony. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, one of the things that I love to do is to start from a macro perspective before we jump into the ins and outs of this latest resource that we're going to talk about. Um, how would you describe the call that God has placed on your life? Like, How does somebody get called into being the, the president of a seminary? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I never dreamed I would ever be involved in this kind of work. But, you know, when I was very young, when I came to the Lord, I was called into full-time ministry. And over the years, that ministry calling has been shaped and formed. So I was a pastor for a decade. I was a professor in a seminary for for 15 years. And then now I'm here for 14 years. So it's been a kind of a gradual unfolding where you see where, you know, God, you know, calls you, gets your attention and Cause you to use your gifts in a new way. So the Lord, uh, I never would have dreamed about coming here, but the Lord clearly spoke to us and said that uh, he was giving us a new assignment and for us to pack up our bags and come to Kentucky. So <laughs> I had never been to Wilmore in my life. So I was a complete <laughs> outsider, but the Lord uh, indicated that's what he wanted us to do. So we, we came. That's awesome. Uh, in my notes, I see that you've pastored uh, churches in Georgia and in New England, and now you live in Kentucky. Um, that's quite the wide uh, berth when it comes to the U.S. W- what have you learned about the church um, in all the different geographical places? Are, are there any big, you know, like major differences or, um, you know, just reassuring similarities? Well, yeah, I mean, some of the big differences between um, you know, South and Northeast uh, and, and West Coast is that uh, when you go to New England, you, you're really in a very different kind of climate. And so a lot of the people who had successful churches on the West Coast or in the Southern U.S. would come to Boston, where I lived, and say, we're going to do what we did in you know, Los Angeles and have a mega church in Boston. It, it doesn't happen. It's a very different environment. It sort of affects church playing strategy. I mean, there are some vibrant churches there. I've pastored several of them, but it's a different environment in New England. And um so, yeah, I learned that. The other big difference was just over the scope of time, because my early ministry in Georgia was in the 80s and early 90s. When I came mm-hmm. back into pastoring 
in the 2000s, the, the church had itself changed dramatically in the U.S. in terms of the, the kinds of way church structures happen and how the gospel was was proclaimed in ways different um, than what I was used to. So there, there definitely have been big changes over my, my 40 years of ministry. Yeah. You know, I guess that's an important distinction, right? Is that not only did the geography change, but the time changed too. And, and everything is kind of shifted. I'm sure you've been the president of the seminary since 2009, um, including the COVID years, which has got to be wild. What's, you know, let's do a little insider baseball. Like what's the one thing that we should know about being a president of a seminary that we wouldn't normally think of? I don't know. I think the uh, one of the biggest challenges is that you're dealing with a lot of different constituencies. You're dealing with faculty, staff, students, uh, trustees, you know, donors, friends, alumni, accrediting bodies, church nominations. There's just a lot of you know groups out there that have, in some way, a stake in the seminary. And I think, in some ways, a seminary is also different from a church, and that you have structural differences between like faculty and staff and students, where there's actually structural differences in their their power and their voice in the institution that is quite different um so in some ways uh it's a very different world in the local church um, because you have uh, different kinds of constituency groups that all are deeply involved deeply embedded and have governance authority in some ways in the life of the school and so it, it's a it's a juggling act and it's a, a way you have to speak to a lot of different groups simultaneously to be effective in this world what have you learned about the academic institution on the other side of COVID that maybe kind of like, cause it, I mean, it really rocked, really rocked the local church, but I would imagine that being in the academy, it also really rocked what we thought about schooling. A- any big realization in that process? Well, I think we were surprised. I mean, gratified, but surprised how many churches uh, contacted Asbury and said, what should we do about, you know, how do we handle communion? How do we handle, visitation, how do we handle uh, a number of issues? And so, you know, the care for the dying. So we realized that our practices were going to be replicated in some ways in the churches. So we thought a lot about how to uh, you know, keep on. I mean, our kind of philosophy was, uh, on the one hand, we were going to abide by the um, CDC regulations and so forth. We were going to, you know, kind of keep faith with all of that. On the other hand, we were not going to cancel anything. So we had our entire student body here, uh, we thought we took the internationals from across the street, so we had even a larger community here in residence at the time. Then all that shut down. Uh, we had to figure out how to have the Eucharist, uh, how to do care, pastoral care, how to do everything in the midst of COVID-19. So I think a lot of us, we were dealing with things the local church was dealing with. You know, how yeah. do you, um, what do you do about people who are dying? What do you do about sick? What do you do about Eucharist? All these things. So uh, we, we did a lot of podcasts where we shared my, my office, our home office, which became kind of like a Grand Central station. I did tons of podcasts from my home office. And uh, we basically um, had thousands of, uh, of uh, and this course also rolled right into racial reconciliation issues because of George Floyd and all of that. Of course. So there was a lot of things that were being, uh, who were looking to us for some guidance and, and this theology. So yeah, it was a wild ride, a wild ride. We had, we had churches on the, in Wilmore. We had to rent out facilities for a while so we could 
have like a small class would meet in a huge sanctuary and for social distancing. It, it, the whole thing was just unbelievable, but we never canceled a class. Wow. In the whole of COVID. In fact, we had our highest enrollment in our history in the middle of COVID. We broke all of our records. Of enrollment. So we, we, and yet we always abided by, we kept the regulations, but we, in Kentucky, they were strict, but we managed to keep moving. And we, of course, we had a whole semester online, but, um, you know, we, we just kept having it. We had one graduation with students only, no guests. I mean, I, the whole thing, one, one virtual graduation, it, a lot of challenges, but we just never canceled anything. We just kept figuring out how to do it. How, how would you describe the burden of leadership that you faced during that constant pivot, shift, pivot? Well, it was challenging because we had, uh, you know, like more than most things, I think our community was had a very diverse views about it. So the people who downplayed the pandemic, other people believed it was, it was you know, we, we were all going to die. I mean, we had the whole spectrum there. And so it wasn't easy to lead through that because you had to speak to people who had really deep, you know, attitudes about the pandemic and, and yeah. coronavirus, et cetera. So naturally, I put together a team. The team was diverse in the sense that we had people on the team that really had different views of it but by design. And so we could actually have good conversations, healthy conversations, and then they made decisions. And the community respected those decisions. Uh, you know, we, we had to do a lot of messaging, of course, and we had, you know, banners on our website. We had a lot of dashboard reporting about how many cases and all that. We had to do a lot of data work. But in the end, we, we never really had any huge, huge problems on campus. And so people kept basically telling us, whatever you are doing, it's working. So we kind of kept marching through it. But I think the people that were fearful of COVID appreciated the fact that we had people that were cautious on the steering committee and those that were really fo focused on let's you know get back to normal uh, mm -hmm. also knew that we had people that understood that. So we had a nice, you know, healthy, so I felt like when I was in the room, I was basically hearing the, the whole community, even though I had six people there, you know, or seven people, whatever it was. So it, it, it was challenging. It's definitely a leadership challenge. Definitely. You know, in, in our uh, Wesleyan stream, the the office that you, um, you hold right now has a lot of um, influence. You know, just Asbury is one of the larger seminaries in our uh, denomination and kind of just in... in you know, the the Wesleyan Christianity world. What what are some of your daily practices that you do to keep yourself connected to God? Because I can imagine with such a big job, um, you know, being the the president of a of, of a seminary, and you've got in, you know students and residents and students online and faculty and all the different factions that you mentioned. How do you stay connected to God so that you don't lose sight of the the kingdom building mission that that I know that you've been called to and that Asbury's been called to? Yeah, it's a great question. When I came to Asbury in 2009, I had the spiritual maturity, if you want to use that word, uh, of a, a seminary professor. And I, I felt like uh, that was, I felt great. When I got here, I quickly realized a year or so into it that I didn't really have the spiritual depth that I needed to, uh, to do this job wow. and to respond to the issues I was facing 
Uh, there's a lot of people who their full-time job is to criticize me and the and Asbury. A lot of people committed to Asbury's demise or whatever. It, it's a very challenging environment. Um, so my wife, I told my wife at one point, you know, I, I maybe a year and a half or two years into it, I said, you know, I either have to get out or go deeper. Mm. And so we we talked about it and prayed about it, and the Lord really led us to a practice. We started an experiment. We decided, well, you know what? This is back in 2012. We decided that we would um, we would get up an hour earlier and we would spend an hour every morning in the Psalms uh, prior to our normal devotional time, and we would do that for 150 days and go through the Psalms. Wow. Go through the Psalms. So we did that, and we we got up an hour earlier and we went through the Psalms uh, one by one. It took us a little longer because it took a week to get through Psalm 119. <laughs> Anyway, we finished it, and we um, at the end of that, we we realized that the Psalms were actually the great resource for us, spiritual mm. resource for us. And so we said we cannot stop doing this. This has been so powerful for us. And you know, I, I think everybody has to approach their own kind of solution sometimes differently than what we did. But we realized this was God's answer for us, and so. We've been doing that, including this morning. We've been doing that every day since uh, 2012. That means 10 years now we've been doing this. And it doesn't matter if I'm traveling on the road, which I'm traveling a lot, we still do it over the phone. So we actually um, are really have found that spending extended time in the Psalms, and we eventually put out a Psalter, we, we sing the Psalms as well. Mm. We found that that was really, really... Um, because the Psalms really brings out all of the conflict, the challenges, the depth, the deep angst, everything you can imagine. I, I kind of view the Psalms as 150 different journeys of life, journeys, and some you may only need a few times in your life, some you need every day, but these are journeys that are there. And I had I was really unfamiliar with the, the 150 journeys. Now I know them very well. I think we're now, I think, in our something like, I think about our 20-some-odd trip through the Psalter, and uh, maybe maybe 25. And through that process, uh, the Psalms have become really deeply embedded in my life. And so when mm. I have challenge or problems, there is a, there's a, a Psalm to meet that. And that's been one of the, there's been other things, but that's been one of the most important spiritual practices that has really shaped my life in the last, uh, last decade. It's so interesting that you say that. You have no way of knowing this, but I've been praying about what I'm for uh, every year. I, I try to pick up a spiritual discipline, and I'm almost done reading the scripture in the year. And so in January, you know, start over again. And the Lord placed on my heart Psalms, and I was I've kind of like talking myself out of it. Like, ah, oh, it feels a little like, where's the meat? You know, give me a little bit more Jesus. But I, I think, um, you know, I think, I think you just sealed the deal for me. I, I'm going to do it next year. So, absolutely, I can send you some resources. But I, you know, and we eventually put out a, a psalter and a also a, um, a a devotional guide for the psalms. But I do think that I think it was probably maybe the third or fourth year into it. Uh, I began to realize in the morning as we sang the psalms, we were going to hear the voice of Jesus uh, singing with us. And and once you realize the psalms are the prayer book of Jesus that He had. It becomes very powerful when you actually uh, you're actually 
communing with Jesus in a way that is very powerful. And so you, you think because of the psalm never mentioned the name of Jesus explicitly, but actually he's in, he's in all the psalms, and it's very powerful. <laughs> Believe me. Trust me. That's good. And what, you know what we'll do is we'll link to that in the show notes. It's on your website, The Meditative Journey Through the Psalms. So we'll be sure to uh, link through that if anybody wants to join me in Psalms next year. And it sounds like you too. <laughs> we'll do it again with you next year. Absolutely. We do it every year. That's great. Uh, I do want to talk about your new resource, um, the, the Foundations of Christian of the Christian Faith, a resource for catechists and discipling. Let's um, let's start with the finding catechist. For some pe- some of the listeners, you know, there's somebody on their treadmill right now who's like catechist. I should know what that word means, but I don't. How how would you define that term in the church today? Yeah, the word catechesis is really a, a, a key word in discipleship and instruction. I mean, it literally means to sound down, and it was really about a a more mature believer sounding forth the faith to a younger believer who would then echo it back. And so it's kind of the word echo, where you, um, well, basically, how does the, how is the, the gospel re-echoed or resounded through the generations? Uh, we, they didn't have podcasts. They didn't have internet. They didn't have books. They basically had one-to-one transmission with people-to-people. And so catechesis originally was mostly older disciples teaching younger disciples. That eventually has, of course, morphed into all kinds of other resources. But I still think there is a powerful human element to discipleship that's really crucial in the church. But essentially, it's a, it's a word, an ancient word for the church for how the faith is passed down. Therefore, it's connected to discipleship and basically how we instruct new believers in the faith. This is... Um this is a, a thicker book than what I normally get from Christian authors. Um, I'm trying Sorry. to say that as, as uh, carefully as possible. I, I don't mean it in any way other than just this. You clearly put a ton of time and energy into it. How did you know that God was calling you to write something that was so in-depth, so thorough? You know, like who gets called to, to write a catechesis? Well, I think I, it was a pretty obvious thing for me because there was so much um, uh, clearly a problem in, of, of falling off of biblical literacy and Christian practices in the culture and the church itself. And so we began, one of my advantages of my position is I travel over the country, over the world. I made uh, multiple world, worldwide trips to every continent. And I spent a lot of time talking to our alumni. We have 13,000 plus alumni in the world. And so they're giving me feedback, and they're saying, you know, we do not feel like we have resources to pass down the faith well. It used to happen more in the home. It's now being kind of pushed more into the church. So how does the church do this? And even the home, people who want to do it in the home are saying, what do we do? Um, this, this has been also put out into smaller versions, like, uh, you know, just the Apostles' Creed or just the Lord's Prayer, or those who just want to, can't take a book that's, you know, that's 300 pages long. But... This brings together all the resources in one place. And um, the amazing thing about this, this resource, I didn't have to really think through the, the contents because the, uh, the church has, despite all the difference in the church and all the different branches of the church, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, the church has basically agreed on why we use the Apostles' Creed, why we use the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, why that's important. 
So that's been pretty much a standard throughout the history of the church. So my job was to kind of re-articulate in modern terms, how do you explain to somebody, you know, what the Apostles' Creed means or what the Ten Commandments means, but the the structure wasn't too difficult. I did add some things that were peculiar to our culture, if you want to discuss that, but the main body of this is very much a part of what the church has been using all through history. Yeah, you've kind of broken this down into three major areas and then also use kind of three historic, um, you know, historic to the church documents kind of language here. But what made you break it down into doctrine, ethics, and ordinances? And I'm wondering if you could kind of give us, you know, a 30,000 viewpoint of, of each one. Like if someone's like, oh, you know, what is doctrine? Um, how, how are we answering that? And why was it important to start there? Well, I think the, the, the deeper question is, the, the first question is, what does it mean to uh, be a Christian? Which is a very important mm. Wesleyan question, because Wesley felt like the church had focused too much, and I agree with him, too much on becoming a Christian, and not enough on being a Christian. So if mm. you're focused on becoming a Christian, you're focused on evangelism and justification. If your focus is on being a Christian, then you, you ask, okay, what is the second half of the gospel? What is the role of the Holy Spirit of being sanctified and being formed and shaped. And, and, and if discipleship really is the, the great new vista of renewal, then it really does bring the Wesleyan message right into the heart of the church's future. So the church has always believed that if someone is really going to embody the Christian life, they needed three things. They need to have right beliefs, which is doctrine. What do you believe? They had to have their lifestyle, I think the word we would use, lifestyle needed to be consistent with Christian principles, what we call as ethics. And thirdly, they need to have practices that would be able to allow them to grow in the faith. We call this the means of grace, probably in our term, you know, the, the, Lord, the Lord's Supper, baptism, prayer, Bible reading, all of that. So those three components um, are necessary to really properly form. If you have someone who's just doctrinally formed, and some churches do that, they focus on doctrine only, then you end up with someone who knows a lot, but their life may be unchanged. If you have somebody who is really maybe um, has some amazing practices, but really doesn't understand what lies behind it and the, the power of the gospel, then you also have a problem. So it's trying to bring together, you know, belief, lifestyle, and practices into one, you know, one whole cohesive whole, because that's really the heart of what actually means when we become disciples of Christ. Hey guys, just pause this conversation with Dr. Tennant to remind you to sign up for the Spirit and Truth Conference. March 2023, Dayton, Ohio. You're going to want to be here for speakers like Kim Moss, uh, Maggie Ulmer, Matt Reynolds, and so many more. You're going to love the kind of the essence of this worshipful conference. For a discount code, you can go to spiritandtruth.life slash conference and use the code podcast to get some money off your registration. I can't wait to see you there. Yeah, talk, talk to us about the importance of ordinances, because I, I think, um, you know, a lot of my podcast family, they go to non-denominational churches where they're not familiar with ordinances or the liturgical calendar or any of these kind of um, things that may be a little bit more practical in the, the Wesleyan stream, or I, you know, I grew up Catholic, so ordinances like you know, give me all the smells and bells. I, I went to a Catholic funeral not too long ago, and uh, 
I, I was just almost brought to tears by how much I kind of missed, a, you know, high liturgy. Because um, in the Methodist churches I had been going to, we just didn't do it, and which is okay, right? But talk, talk to us about the importance of ordinances and how they can shape our faith. Like, how, why do ordinances matter? I think the main reason, especially in the post-Enlightenment world, is that if you think the Christian faith is something that is merely uh, cognitively explainable, you know, like the work of God is explained in doctrines and, you know, things that we're to do, like ethical things, <clears throat> then you really don't get actually into the heart of the faith. The heart of the faith, as important as doctrine is, important as our ethics and lifestyle is, there is a mystery to the faith. It, it is a great mystery, God's work in our lives. And there are many, many things in our lives that the Holy Spirit has to deal with at a deep, mysterious level. And the ordinances, uh, like the Lord's Supper and baptism, are great examples of mysteries. Um, or how in the world, you know, the fact that Christ promises to meet us at the table. Um, it's not something that you believe it's something you do you know you're taking the eucharist into your body you know you are being baptized under water these are very powerful things you do and the amazing thing is god promised to meet us in those situations so i think the um, the, the mystery of the gospel is captured really well there and i think there's something about the the power of especially the eucharist where you regularly remember your baptism and you re-enter that that mystery of the faith is really, really powerful. And I think that ultimately you can't really experience Christianity unless you understand that there is a mystery to it that goes beyond just what you can explain or put in a tract or whatever. What do we lose as a church when we cut out liturgy? Well, I, I think there's anything liturgy. Uh, I think liturgy is part of all churches. I think we have formal liturgies and we have more informal liturgies. So oh, some people point. are very much attracted to um, like formal liturgical things that the church does. And you mentioned some of those, you know, where you have the, you know, the incense or other kinds of things, the, the procession of the cross and so forth. But I do think that in some ways all churches have rhythms, uh, life rhythms that they, they experience. And so part of the power of catechesis and of, is how do we learn from things we repeat? Uh, our kids said to us, you know, one time when we were on a family vacation, when they were all adults, you know, the things they most remember their childhood were things that we did every single year or, you know, mm. did regularly. The regular rhythms of life, the things that are most embedded in our lives. So even uh, Pentecostal churches have very deeply held rhythms of things that are part of that experience, being a Pentecostal. And I think in some ways the, the, the distinction between liturgical and non-liturgical churches um, is actually a false one because liturgy literally means the work of the people. So what it does really means is, are the people passive in the church building? Are they simply passive in the pews? Or are they in some ways actively participating both in worship and the world? And, uh, Pentecostals, last I checked, they're pretty active in the pulpit and in the pews, but they don't have to be active in the, in the building, and that's that's a very powerful thing. So, I think that in some ways um, we have to maybe rethink because the word sacrament uh, in liturgy is tied to again to mystery. 
I think some another in that process of how we respond and how we come forward or kneel or go out in the world and serve the poor is bringing brought up into the mystery of the gospel. So when we think about um, this process of disciple making and catechesis, how, how do you let that play out in your life personally? I'm, I mean, you're, you're obviously super busy. Um, you're surrounded by people all the time. How do you pick your spots on like, yep, okay, this is a person that I'm going to pour into or, you know, find those people and bring them in. What's kind of your discernment process in that? Because I, I imagine there are, are some people who are like, man, I just don't know that I have time to make disciples. Well, that's true. The time isn't always a factor. But, you know, we, we, we do what we're committed to doing. Um, I, I, I have gone through many changes over the years of who I disciple. But at this stage of my life, I'm focused mostly on uh, very senior leaders, that people, mm. that especially fellow seminary presidents, or in some cases they're like provosts or deans, people that have, are just new to this world who really need a lot of help and mentoring and guidance because I, I know this world. Um, I think in some ways we have to always ask, what is our world? What, is, what, is the, what are the areas where we have expertise? And so my, uh, I focus more on that. Um, so I spend some t uh, time with, with people, um, and there is a fellowship, you may not know it, there's actually a fellowship of evangelical seminary presidents across the whole mm -hmm. country. We meet together, we pray together, we have meetings, we talk, and we are all, all in fellowship together, and there's several ones of those that I spend a lot of extra time with that have asked or reached out to me in some way. So I think it, uh, in my whole life, over the period of my life, is the people I've done is different but that seems to be the group that I mostly spend time with now. In the process of writing this resource, um, I, I'm, I'm always curious, how, how did God speak to you? Uh, what did you learn from God that maybe you didn't know or that you needed to be reminded of? Because I can't imagine, you went through the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. You, you asked a ton of questions, like, if, if anyone's thinking about picking up this book, one of the things I'll tell you is that it's it's a lot more than just an information, um, like it, it wants to extract information from you. It wants you to wrestle with some things along the way. What happened internally with you as, as you put this out into the world? Well, it's an interesting question because um, on the one hand, there, it's, this is very familiar territory for me, so I felt very comfortable with it because these are pretty basic uh, Christian things. But on the other hand, uh, on the catechesis section where we, uh, the 30 questions, this is done in part by asking uh, people, what are the questions you have about, about Christianity? And it was a little surprising. I mean, for example, a lot of Christian, young Christians would said to me, uh, we have no idea what the purpose of the Old Testament is, or we don't understand the Old Testament. We don't understand the purpose of the law. One of the questions is about the law. And, of course, I knew enough to know that the Christians really differ about how we relate to the law. And Wesleyans have their own kind of view of it, which is different than a lot of other Christians. And I really wrestled a lot more with, gosh, you know, how do I talk about this? Uh, because this is meant to be kind of an introduction to Christian faith in general. But there, some of these questions involve real difference in the church's view. Um, so that was a, a big learning point. The other thing about the Old Testament, which comes out in the... Uh, the latter part of part one of the book, 
was that people ask me a lot. I have no idea about the Old Testament. It's a whole big mystery to me. I, the whole thing's just a big, big, thick book. How do you get started? What, what do you do? I mean, that, that was a big issue. Nobody felt courage to like, jump into the Old Testament and read from Genesis to Malachi. <laughs> and so I realized that, and also how it relates to the New Testament. So I realized, you know, if you know four figures, you know, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David, if you're just introduced to those four figures, basically the Old Testament really does open up for you and the New Testament finally makes sense because if you know just those four figures, that's the main way the New Testament relates to the Old is through Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. And so it actually helped me to think mm -hmm. through, like as a leader, like how do you explain the Old Testament to somebody who's like, it's all mystery to me, I can't, I can't, I don't even know where to start. So... Uh, there, there are ways in which the book always helps you because, to me, the teaching is the art of summarization. And whenever you can't summarize something, it means you're not—you don't really know it yourself. And so, when someone says, "Give me a summary of the Old Testament," and you can't do it well, it means that you yourself need to learn it better. And so, I did find it was helpful for me to think through uh, how to explain things to people who have never really encountered the faith. Oh, that's good. As this book, uh, you know, by the time people listen to this, the book will have been out in the world for almost a year. Um, what is your prayer in, in in having this out here? If someone picks up this book, but like, listen to this conversation, they're like, "Man, this is exactly what I need." W what should we be praying alongside you? Because I know my my community loves to pray. What should we be praying alongside you um, as people put this book in their hands? Well, what we pray for is disciple believers, and I, I think that um, you know the Gen Z, the Gen Alpha generation, are hungry for people to to say to them, "Being a Christian actually means something." And I think we we have a long period of minimalistic Christianity, where basically the evangelical movement has asked the question, "What is the least someone has to do to become a Christian?" That's been our kind of mantra. Our that's been our, uh, unfortunately, our, you know, prom directive. You know, what is the least one has to do? We try to lower the bar. I think we have to declare that project over. And I think we, we're now in a new phase where people are saying, no, I want to know what is what is Christianity. What, give me, give it to me full strength. I want it. Give me the Tabasco sauce. I, I don't want to just, you know, have mashed potatoes. Give me the whole thing. So this is really laying out, okay, this is the foundation you need to build on. And, of course, from this foundation you can build the rest of your life but I do think that, um, that the church can pray your church can pray that we get beyond the minimalistic Christianity that has obviously failed us and failed our culture and move to a more robust non-eroded we, well, we, I mean I look at myself and say if I was 20 years old today and the gospel that's being kind of parried about today, would I be a Christian? The answer is no. I would never come. I would never be attracted to the faith because I would not be interested in what's being put out there today. So we have to realize there's people out there that are actually praying for and and they don't realize it, but they're longing for something really, really robust, and we should give it to them. That's good. That's good. I like that a lot. Um, since I have you here, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a question about the next generation of pastors. 
right? You're, you're training them up and sending them out. Asbury's, you know, one of the premier institutions for that. Um, what do you see the next generation of pastors? What do you see in them? Uh, what, what, uh, what words of wisdom do you have for their future church members? Because there's a lot of people listening who are going to be in a church that's pastored by um, this next wave of leaders. What, uh, what words of wisdom do you have for them? Well, I love, I love our young people. I love their energy. I love their, their creativity. I love their innovative commitments. I love their, their desire to get, get it done. Um, I find it very inspirational. So I think we're going to a period where the church, as we know, a lot of what we know at the church has to die. But Jesus said, unless the grain of wheat falls and dies, it will not bear fruit. Mm -hmm. So we have to go through the death of quite a bit of kind of institutional life Christianity and really see something else reborn. I think our generation was very reticent to to accept that and to even embrace it, the death of anything. We, we want to kind of keep these institutions rolling. Yeah. But I think this, this generation understands that... Um, that won't that won't work, and we have to see the birth of something new. We're we're seeing, for example, you know, thousands of church plants. We we've trained already over a thousand church planters at Asbury since I've been here, and we're launching a whole new center for church publication. And what we're seeing is churches are being planted, you know, in tattoo parlors, in pubs, in uh, Home Depot break rooms, you know, schools, whatever. It's a very different world. A lot of house church movement, a lot of banded together. We have mm. thousands in small group bands, and these bands are becoming uh, movements. And so, uh, our new room conference and our and our seedbed publishing is unbelievably growing. And so, uh, the new room conference we had just a few weeks ago, we had almost three thousand leaders there. You know, these are people wanting to grow and wanting to be brought to something deeper. So, I think it's very exciting. Uh, I look out over the New Room Conference, and seven, eight years ago, when we first started, it was a lot of older pastors, which was wonderful. But today, I look out over the, the, the congregation this past two weeks ago, and it was just packed with mostly young people. Wow. And we have now a collegiate initiative called the Awakening Project, which is going around and meeting these groups across the country in college campuses you would not believe of the fervent prayer groups that are all over this country by very young people. And so I think there's a lot that, you, you know, the news you know, is one thing, but beneath the news, there's the reality. And I think there's a lot of deep, powerful things happening in the church in North America. And by the way, in Europe, where the church is, they're ahead of us in terms of the death process. And the church there realizes it's dead. And there's now some amazing energizing things happening in Europe where we'd all kind of given up hope for Europe. So I do think that uh, this is a great time to be part of training young people for the ministry. I love that. I love it. Uh, okay, one more question to ask you, uh, but before I do, I know that my listeners are going to want to connect you with you all over the interwebs. Where is the best thing to learn more about what God's doing in and through you? You mean on the internet? Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, timothytenant.com is my website, and so I have there my, my sermons, my pu publications, various things I think about, what are my blogs, whatever, so people can connect there. Uh, all my blogs allow people to write in, and they can write in and uh, tell me what they think about anything I say, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> I 
Oh, that's you know, great. So I'm happy to have interaction with people. But uh, yes, by all means, uh, in, in the Wesleyan Church, uh, I was at their headquarters recently, and I'm so thankful for them. And, and we serve constituencies all the way across, you know, Pentecostal to Anglican, and all the all the Wesleyan denominations. Um, we're so happy. We and I just one of the joys of this job is getting to know people from all of these different groups. So we're we're thankful for all of them. Amen. That's great. Uh, okay, last question. I always love to ask people. It's an advice question. I'm going to ask you to go back and give yourself one piece of advice, except I get to name the season where you give yourself that advice. I mean, I'm asking myself, I'm talking to myself 20 years ago or 30 years yep, ago? Uh, yep, that's exactly right. I'm going to take you back to the day before you started as the president of mm -hmm. Asbury Seminary, 2009. If you could pull up a chair in front of that younger version of yourself, sit knee to knee with them, look them in the eyes, what's the one piece of wisdom you're going to give them? I would say to him, um, take a deep breath. It's gonna, this journey's going to be okay. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't need to freak out. It's going to be okay, and uh, and just trust the Lord to trust the Lord more. You know, to do mm -hmm. His work and to do even beyond uh, anything you can imagine, um, because uh, this job has been not been about my competency, but about. God's faithfulness, and uh, that's been a great, great thing about this journey is God has met me and shown me that um, He's doing His work. Amen. Amen. Timothy, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you for your, and for pouring into the next generation. I'm praying that this resource continues to reach um, churches and church leaders and uh, just, you know, church members all over the world. So thank you. Thank you, Tony. It's been a great blessing. God bless you and your your um, those who listen to your podcast. What an amazing conversation with Dr. Tennant. I absolutely love his heart for the church. I love his heart for the faith. And I think his resource, Foundations of the Christian Faith, is one that you might want to consider picking up. There's so many great things in there. I know you're going to enjoy it. Guys, I'm thankful for each and every one of you. Thankful to be on this journey with you and for the community that we get to build here on the Reclamation Podcast. And remember, guys, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move.